HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cooking Issues has been proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market reminds you that every bite has a story, so whether it's a tomato, a muffin, or a T-bone steak, your conscious food choices can change the planet. Because at Whole Foods Market, every single purchase you make helps us support things like animal welfare, organic agriculture, equitable trade, and energy offsets. Let's think before we eat. Let's retake our plates. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, coming to you on the Heritage Radio Network. I am not in the studio today. Today we're coming live to you from London Heathrow Airport as uh, Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, and I are waiting to fly back to uh, New York City. But we're still here live to take all of your cooking-related questions. Uh, call in to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Now, unfortunately, Nastasha is sitting next to me, and we can't have two of our cell phones calling in at once, so she's going to have to just make comments uh, next to me from the from the peanut gallery, but we're going to try to do uh, the best we can. Actually, Nastasha and I were both over here doing a demonstration uh, for uh, of rotary evaporation here in London, which is interesting. We got to hang out with our other good rotary evaporation friend, Tony Conigliaro, uh and uh, it was a good time, right, Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so uh, we have some email questions, thankfully. Are there other call number? Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So uh, Marv Woodhouse from Belfast, the U.K., writes in, uh, I'm hoping to get an ISI cream whipper for Christmas. Can the same unit be used for CO2 and N2O cartridges? I would like to use the same unit for infusion and for carbonation. Uh, okay, so first of all, what we're talking about is the, uh, the you know the things that you buy to make whipped cream. They're made by ISI, which is a company out of Austria. Uh, anyway, so they have the ones that are made for soda water, uh, which are you know the soda siphons, and they have the ones that are meant for whipped cream, right? Uh, and the main difference between those two is the soda ones have uh, a uh, 
like a tube. First of all, the neck is much smaller. And they have a tube that goes down to the bottom of them so that when you press the, the little lever to dispense it, the, the liquid is forced through the tube and out of the uh, nozzle, just like, you know, in the Three Stooges, everyone gets sprayed in the face of seltzer, that kind of thing, right? Uh, but they both take the exact same cartridges. So you can put uh, N2O, the whipped cream cartridges, into, an, into a CO2 machine, and you can put, uh, you can put and, and vice versa. They, they, they both work. Now, I would definitely recommend getting the cream whipper rather than the uh, rather than the seltzer one. The seltzer one has a much smaller neck, so you can't put a lot of things into it uh, as easily as you can into the whipped cream one. And you can actually carbonate. I mean, it's not my favorite to carbonate, but you can carbonate with the whipped cream uh, with the whipped cream thing. The, the trick is. Um, you know, you, you have to just vent off the excess CO2, open it, and pour it all out. You can't dispense it like the Three Stooges uh, movie. You have to actually vent it and then pour, pour all the carbonated liquid out. Usually when you're carbonating with a, with a, a whipped cream maker, though, what you want to make do is put some, uh, put some ice in so it's very, very cold. Make sure everything's extremely, extremely cold. And it's probably going to take two chargers. You're going to want to shake. You're going to want to, and this is in a regular whipped cream maker, you're going to want to put your first CO2 cartridge in, shake it up a bit, and then vent it out. Now you're getting rid of all the air and everything in there that air is what's kind of the air is your main enemy in carbonation so one, one of the main problems i have with carbonating in those bottles is that you can't get all the air out of the headspace so basically that first charger is really venting all of the air out of the headspace uh and also uh getting rid of a lot of the stuff that's going to make it foam and the second charger you put on the second co2 charger is what's really going to get it nice and fizzy then you put your second charger in shake it and let it stand for a couple of minutes for the bubbles to settle down slow slowly slowly vent it unscrew it and pour it out out and you should have a delicious carbonated product even in your whipped cream whippers. So that is a, I would definitely go, uh, Marv, for the uh, whipped cream maker and not the CO2. Uh, anyway, okay. So we have uh, a second question from Melissa. Uh, Melissa actually uh, graduated from uh, Stanford. You know, for those of you out there, Nastasha is a Stanford graduate. It's the same year uh, as Nastasha. Uh, and so uh, they have, I guess, some sort of uh, kindred, kindred spirit. Uh, but she has a couple of questions, one relating to mangoes. Um, both uh, she and her fiancé are uh, huge mango fans. I mean, she grew up in Malaysia, I guess, which is, you know, they have some good mangoes in Malaysia. I've never gotten to go to Malaysia, but I hear they have some good food over there, so we'll assume they were good. Uh, so they, they, you know, eat them by the, by the boatload. Everyone loves the mangoes. And then all of a sudden, about six years ago, her fiancé develops this, uh, this allergy to mangoes, right? And, uh, and actually, I feel... You know, I feel for this as well because uh, I was allergic to nothing growing up. And then all of a sudden when I became about 30, 31 years old, I developed a, uh, an allergy to cherries. Now they, my throat closes up and I have to go to the hospital and all this. It's, it's a nightmare. So my wife doesn't let me have any more cherries even though they're actually my favorite fruit. I guess, you know, I was being punished for uh, always making fun of other people's allergies. So because I always make fun of other people's allergies, you know, someone said, hey, how about you become allergic to your favorite fruit? Anyway, um, and interestingly, uh, he became allergic after sitting down and consuming an entire box of mangoes in one sitting. This guy sounds like he's, you know, kind of like me a little bit. The way I did it with cherries is, well, first I had had a preposterous uh, number of lobsters at this summer party, and then, you know, I, I bought a giant bag of cherries to kind of wash down the, the lobsters, and, of course, I ate the whole bag by myself, and I ended up in the hospital. So I guess there is something to, you know, too much of a good thing. Uh, and so her question is, is there any way to neutralize the toxin in mangoes to make them edible for someone who's allergic to them without compromising the integrity or their flavor or texture, uh, either through some physical cooking method or by adding some kind of neutralizing agent? Okay, look, well, it, it, the, the answer is it depends. There's basically two different ways that you can be allergic to mangoes, right? Uh, the first 
uh, way, and this is the way I hope it is uh, for him, that you can be allergic to mangoes, is you can be allergic to uh, uh, a chemical uh, which I can never get the name right, but it's like urushiol, which is basically very similar to the, or is the chemical that's in poison ivy. And there's a little bit of that chemical in the, out, in the mango skin and in the sap, right? So, and then you're going to get like a contact, like you're going to get a rash, basically a dermatitis from touching it, just like you would get from poison ivy. The good news is if you, if you wear gloves and you peel the mango relatively thickly and don't let the peel get back onto the fruit after you cut it, that people who are allergic to that, to uh, the Arushio, or however you pronounce it, like th- those, those people can, um, can have mango, okay? Now, um, the, there are people, though, who are legitimately allergic to the mangoes uh, themselves, right? And that's closer to the allergy I have with, uh, with cherries. And mo- most fruit allergies basically have uh, uh, to do with proteins that are on, uh, that are on the fruit, in the fruit. And, and somehow they seem to be, from the research I've done, related to um, actually pollen allergies. And unfortunately, uh, there's no way to uh, get rid of those in a raw fruit. Now, it, certain of these proteins are destroyed by cooking. So it, like, theoretically, with me, I could eat cooked cherries, but unfortunately, I never really like cooked cherry products. I just like raw cherries, and I don't feel like experimenting with it and ending up in the hospital and having my wife like, you know, call me an idiot for, for experimenting with cooked cherries and going to the hospital. But it is theoretically possible that... Um, that you can cook it and have the allergy go away. Now, all this is assuming that it's not like an anaphylactic. Like, uh, I mean, I go to the hospital when I eat these things because my throat closes up and I sound like Daffy Duck because, you know, I can't breathe anymore, and you end up in the hospital. But it's not really a full-on anaphylactic reaction, like my body doesn't shut down. It's just my throat closes up because of the contact with the stuff with my throat. So if it is that... Um, you know, you have two basic things you have to figure out. What, you know, what are you allergic to? Uh, is the actual mango... Uh, or is it just this chemical in the skin? And then it does cooking make it go away? I'm not sp- sure specifically with mango, but it, you have a, a good shot. But there's nothing you're going to be able to do that's going to make, uh, if it is the mango itself, to make a raw mango, uh, you know, n- not uh, n- not cause a reaction, unfortunately. You know, because uh, I'm sure, you know, a raw mango and a cooked mango, they are not the same thing. Um, so Melissa also asks uh, whether she knows that uh, Nastasha's worked with Cesare Casella, one of our one of our good friends, uh, Italian chef from Tuscany. He's, uh, he used to be the uh, the salt. He, he's a sultan of salumi now, and he was uh, what the uh, wizard of beans or something like that. The, the empresario of beans. I mean, he has like these Tuscan beans. He has this he has salumi. He runs the Salamaria Rossi, and um, you know, up in the uh, Upper West Side of New York, uh, all around good guy, and we like him. And so. Um, Melissa was wondering whether Nastasha had any recommendations because she's setting up a, a tour to Italy. Uh, and you're uh, lucky that uh, Cesare has just started uh, a culinary tours company of Italy where he takes people from the USA to visit and uh, taste and visit not, not only just restaurants but shops and vendors. And if I know Cesare, and I do, you know, it's going to be an interesting tour. I mean, the man knows his suppliers over there. And he knows, uh, you know, he knows food, and he definitely knows uh, Tuscany like the like the back of his hand. And uh, I don't have his website here, but it's Cesare Casella, and or you can, you guys who are, you know, write questions into the, to the radio show can just write uh, Nastasha if you're interested in, in contact info for that. Um, okay, so hey, we Dave, have... We, have a, we have a caller, Dave. Oh, we have a caller. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Um, I just right. had a quick question, uh, and I'm going to make it super short because I'm actually in class as we speak. But uh, mm-hmm. I had a question about making bitters. Okay. Hello? Hello? 
Hey, what's your question on bitters? Um, I was just curious about the process of making it uh, in your home. Like, uh, where could you find information on it? Um, and, like, where to start, really? Right. So if you troll the uh, if you troll uh, kind of bartenders forums and probably on on uh, eGullet, there's a load of information on bitters. Another excellent mm-hmm. source is a, some of the old bitters recipes are in the old kind of al- alcohol handbooks that are available on Google Books, like the old stuff yeah, from the eighteen hundreds. Like I've a, looked at those. Um, yeah, and and you can get a lot of it, those. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, is it better to start with uh, overproof alcohol, like a Spiritus or an Everclear, or is it better to use something flavorful, or really does it depend on the profile you're looking for? It depends on the profile you're looking for, but most often people start with an overproof product, and they get you know a faster and probably a more complete result with that, and then you can water it down when you're done. But most people are starting with, with an overproof product. Um, you know, one thing you know I will say that's interesting. A lot of people ask because you know we have a lot of new techniques for infusion, and. Uh, you know, I don't like if you use one of the newer techniques. I don't think you're going to get the same result as you would get with the older technique. Like I say, not better, not worse, just different. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely look into the you know into some of the older some of the older recipes if you're trying to achieve an authentic older result. I mean, I know John Derrigan was one of the first people to make Abbott's bitters, but I think Abbott's is now maybe commercially available. I don't know if the maybe the Bitter Truth has it or not. Also, Cocktail uh, Cocktail Kingdom Greg Baum's uh, website, he has a lot of information on bitters because he has a lot of the old recipe books. But it's very simple to do. It just takes time and sourcing of the herbs. And if you're in New York, there's a couple places uh, downtown that have like very good uh, herb selections or else online. I don't have the website off the top of my head where to go. Go, but I'm most of that, most everything's available. Okay, great. I'm actually uh, in New York, so I guess most stuff is readily available. Um, and yeah, really, there, would you say a, that the, the slow time is the best way to do it? There's really no way to push it. Well, it's not the only way, but if you want the actual specific flavors that you would get from those uh, older older ways of doing it, then I would do it that way. I mean, I haven't experimented so much with straight, like, actual, like, uh, using a similar recipe, for instance, to, like, an Angostura or an Abbott's or a Peixo to try and get a fast result using one of my new techniques. The new techniques would, I'm sure, make a great result, but they would be different. In other words, I, don't, I just don't think it's a matter of better or worse. I think it's just different in what you're shooting at. If you're trying to recreate an old recipe, then I would do it the old way. If you're just interested in your own flavors, then by, you know, by all means, use one of the newer techniques and see whether you come up with something that you like better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much. No problem. Good luck with it. Tell us what happens. All right. Uh, So, let me see what we have going on here. I have another question. Someone uh, asks, Colin, uh, do you know what is in a Ferran Adria's product, Fizzy, from his Texturas line? Now, uh, Ferran Adria, you know, the famous chef from Albuli, has a whole line of products called Texturas, which are kind of new ingredients that are unfortunately called molecular gastronomy ingredients, uh, you know, by people because they're, you know, a lot of the ingredients that are, you know, labeled by uh, reporters and whatnot as molecular gastronomy, even though anyone that knows me knows I detest that term. Ron Adria detests that term. Uh, Hessen Blumenthal detests that term. Harold McGee detests that term. Wiley Dufresne detests that term. Uh, pretty sure Grant Akis detests that term. Uh, I can't, I, it's very hard to find someone who likes the term molecular gastronomy who, who you know, speaks English. Um, but that said, 
that's often how they're labeled. So Fizzy is one of these products he has. He sells a methicillin line. He sells a, he sells an alginate. He sells all this stuff. But Fizzy is one that's supposed to be a carbonation uh, kind of thing, Fizzy, but, and, it, and it's a solid. Now, unfortunately, I haven't actually used it. So uh, the question is, is there's two basic ways that it could could be. I, since I haven't used it, I can't say what it is, but there's two basic things that could, could happen. One, it can be similar to a Pop Rocks. And a Pop Rocks, uh, the way you make Pop Rocks is you take sugar and you heat it till it's molten, till it's molten sugar, and then you put very high pressure on it, like 8,000, uh, sorry, 800 to 1,000 psi, uh, it's pounds per square inch, uh, of carbon dioxide into it, and basically infuse the, the CO2 at that very high pressure. You then allow it to set into a block, you release it, at which point the, the candy explodes, leaving you with these little rocks. Now, inside of the rocks are high-pressure carbon dioxide. When you put it in your mouth, you melt the candy and pop. That high-pressure carbon dioxide comes out and hits your tongue. And that's why uh, Pop Rocks is so much sharper in taste than, um, than a normal seltzer because it's actually you know, quite a high concentration pressure of CO2 there. Anyway, that's Pop Rocks. So, and you can buy neutral Pop Rocks. Uh, there's a company in... Um, in America called Chef Rubber that sells them, and there's a bunch of people who make kind of blank Pop Rocks, and you can just mix them into things. Now, the other way to get a fizzy effect is by using an acid and base reaction. This is similar to how kind of Alka-Seltzer works or something like that. So when you're doing that, what you're doing is, you, you know, the classic one you could mix, uh, like when you make a kid, when you're doing a... a, a a volcano, when you're for your science project, you mix baking soda, which is a base, and vinegar, which is an acid, and it'll foam up. You're supposed to color it red, of course, so it looks like a volcano. You, you add the vinegar, it foams all over everything, right? This is classic acid base. But you can also use that to make things fizzy in your mouth. And so you, you can use citric acid, and then you could use a, a, you know, you could use a base like baking soda. You could use a more neutral base, and you, you arrange them such that they neutralize each other so you don't have a residual base or acid. Uh, so it's possible that they're taking an acid and a base, and then mixing them into uh, sugar uh, syrup solution, and then turning it into granules, and then you eat it, and it and it forms fizz in your mouth. So I'm not exactly sure what the what the fizzy is, but it could be uh, either one of those things. It's probably an acid base because a lot of the recipes for fizzy have you grinding them up to use them, and that wouldn't work with uh, pop rocks. Um, but uh, I unfortunately am not sure. Someone has to send me a container of it, and I'll play around and report back. So uh, we're going to go to a commercial break, and we'll come back, or not commercial break, a music break, I guess. But please call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues live from Heathrow. Call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, Jam! Sure getting down. Look at him! Ha! We're gonna have a bunk good time. Yeah, 
Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, calling all your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Now, before I come back to answering any questions, uh, you know, tell you guys a little bit of what we've been doing for the past week, uh, two weeks, three weeks, uh, and so uh, and apologize a little bit for the fact that we haven't had a lot of posts going up on the blog. Uh, part of the reason is, is you know, uh, Nastasha and I were trapped in a uh, lot trapped. London's a great place, but we were in London, and the hotel had no free Wi-Fi. Not sorry, no Wi-Fi at all. The internet was completely broken, so we had basically no internet access for the past uh, three days. It's kind of weird to think how your life changes these days. I mean, you know. I didn't even have the internet when I was in college, and uh, you know, not much of the internet. And now, you know, I'm complaining when I don't have it for for three days. So anyway, so uh, since we last spoke uh, uh, on cooking issues, I've been to Kentucky, and I went to a bunch of distilleries in Kentucky, and then uh, we just went to London. But it's been kind of an amazing week, so I think I'll just talk a little bit about that. I don't I usually talk about kind of where I've gone or what I'm doing, but might as well since some of it's uh, pretty interesting. So uh, in in uh, in London, I visited, uh, Nastasha and I visited the Brogdale Collection. Now, the, the Brogdale Collection is the largest uh, collection of fruit in, in the world. It's in Kent, which is about an hour outside of London by train. And it is, like, it is nirvana. It is, like, you know, if I had to pick the closest place to, you know, heaven on earth in terms of temperate, you know, temperate climate fruits. This is it. It's crazy. Now, you first of all, uh, everyone there, which is three people, apologized that you know that we went on a Monday because there was no one there. And remember, this is now it's prime apple season. And Nastasha and I went there for the apples because I visited with Harold McKee. Uh, I had visited uh, you know about four years ago, three four years ago, the uh, the Geneva New York Apple Extension, which is the largest single apple collection of apples in the world, and it was a life-changing experience. It was amazing. You know, I got preposterously sick off of apples over the course of two days with McGee wandering through the trees and just eating and spitting, eating and spitting, eating and spitting. You know, I, you know we became our own cider presses. Anyway, so at that time, I also decided I wanted to go to the Brogdale, which is the English collection. Now, the English and the, and the Americans, we kind of had, a, you know, like a, like a friendly rivalry back in the 1800s up to the early, early 1900s of kind of who could grow the best apples, you know, who could, who, who had the, because it was a kind of a, you know, a Victorian area, a Victorian era, a lot of people were developing new fruit varieties. It was really kind of an important thing to do, and it was really kind of the golden era of fruit. And this is when, you know, the thousands and thousands of varieties really, you know, became available. And so I really wanted to come over to England, where I am right now, and, um, taste some of these English varieties in their native setting and just basically see how the Brodale, uh, you know, works. So anyway, so Nastasha and I show up on a Monday. The place is deserted. We saw not one soul, not one soul the entire, we were there for five hours eating fruit and we saw not, not one person, a tour bus showed up. They took like three pictures of the outside of the orchard. They got back on the tour bus and they walked away. I mean, those guys, these guys missed out on the biggest, the coolest thing they possibly could have gone to because it's not, turns out, it's not just apples. Like for me, the apples ended up being a sidelight because I've already tasted a bajillion, jillion apples at the, at, you know, the Geneva Apple Extension in uh, upstate New York. Uh, and by the way, you know, New York apples are some of the finest apples in the whole world, not to toot our horns, but, you know, toot, toot. Um, so, you know, we go there and apples aren't the first thing you come to. Pears are. And, you know, I've never been such a huge pear person, but I go in there and uh, they have 
something like 400, 500 varieties of pear, uh, a lot of which are still on the tree. It's actually past prime picking time for the pears, but on the tree they're still fine because it's prime eating time for the pears. Uh, and Nastasha and I tried maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, 200 varieties of pears, uh, m- most of which, you know, at, at the end we were just, we would split the rows in half, and Nastasha would take the right half, I would take the left half, and we would just eat them, and if they were interesting, we would tell each other uh, about it. But and we'll post on it soon on the blog, but uh, suffice it to say that there is a lot more to know about pears than you have ever known if all you've had is a supermarket pear. The range of flavors and textures in pears is astonishing, not surprising, astonishing. We had pears that tasted like rose water. We had, uh, we had a whole variety of pears that I didn't even learn about, which are pears that are uh, only cooking pears. So they, they never get soft. You can actually, these are pears that can actually be stored a long, long time over winter and be used into spring. And they're, they're hard like rocks and they, they need to be cooked. They don't develop their flavor, uh, or their proper texture until they're cooked, until they're cooked. But, you know, unlike cooking apples, which are, you know, have similar characteristics, but are basically just tart, like these ones are, you know, useless, uh, until they're, uh, until they're cooked. And we, we tried a couple. Unfortunately, I can't bring me back to the States to, uh, cook them to see what happens, but, you know, uh, we have uh, just an infinite variety of textures and aromas. And so when you read the old books on uh, pomology, which is the fruit study, you know, usually these temperate fruits like apples and pears and stone fruits, you'll, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear people say how awesome pears are, but you're sitting there as a modern person, you're like, pears, who cares about pear being pear? I mean, I like a pear, but what's the big deal? Uh, and then you really get into it and you see what the huge, huge, huge differences are. And all of a sudden, all the old recipes, like, you know, the medieval recipes for cooked pears, like Chard Warden's famous one, like, these ones all make kind of more sense, and you kind of want to try them with the actual with the actual pear now. And, and, you know, four or five years ago, when I became infatuated with the idea of all these apples and flavors that we've lost, I didn't even consider the pear. And now, I'm just as hyped on pears as, as I am on apples. Uh, but that's not all this farm has. I mean, this farm is acres and acres acres where they, they basically let you roam free. They have signs to say, don't walk off the path and go into the orchards, but I mean, come on. I mean, that's just there, I think, for liability reasons, because they have huge rabbit holes. By the way, I mentioned this place is full of game. There's game everywhere. There's rabbits. There was, like, pheasant. There was, like, if, like, if you, like, were allowed to just go on that land and, like, with a shotgun and a still, you would never have to leave, because they have all the game, all the fruit. You could distill. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Anyway, so uh, they have a huge plum orchard with uh, several hundred varieties of plum. Unfortunately, as I said earlier in the program, I'm allergic to cherries, but you know, maybe Nastasha can go back during cherry season because they have hundreds of varieties of cherry, and they specialize mainly in sweet cherries. Kent is interesting as a group. They specialize mainly not in, in cider apples, but oh, they have cider apples, but they specialize mainly in, in not in cider apples. Cider apples are apples that are, are too tannic to use by themselves. They're very good for... Uh, for cider. In Kent, the local ciders are actually made with uh, sweeter sweet apples, sweet apples and cooking apples, not with tannic cider apples. It's the West Country uh, ciders in the UK that are famous for their very, very tannic apples, small tannic apples that they use in their ciders. So Kentish cider actually traditionally uses, so a lot of people in this country, in this country right now, but where I live in the U.S., they think that you're copying out if you're using non-cider varieties for uh, your cider, but it turns out it's actually traditional in certain places like Kent to use non-cider varieties. Um, of apples. So these, but these guys have cider varieties, sweet varieties. They also have a huge nut forest with like a billion different kinds of hazelnut. I mean, the place is nuts. I mean, I wish I could have spent 
Natasha and I have a huge gastrointestinal problems as a result of being there because, uh, you know, we tried, uh, you know, like I say, you know, at least one or 200 varieties of pear, you know, bazillion apples. Uh, we had some plums, even though they were well past prime, and don't bother with a plum. A plum past prime is, a, is, is no fun. Uh, and then we went back to their little cider shop and drank ciders. But uh, if you were in, in England, you know, skip the Tower of London, skip anything, and go get on a train, go to Faversham, which is the little town where it is, and go to the Brogdale and uh, go there in fruit season and have one of the most miraculous fruit experiences you are uh, ever going to have in your entire life. A completely uh, okay. uh, life uh operation there. Hey, Dave, we have a caller. Hello, is that you, Jen? We have a caller? Hey, caller, you're on the air. Great. My name's Corbin. I'm from San Diego. And I had a question about reproducing a barbecue pulled pork using sous vide. There are a couple things I like about barbecue pulled pork. One is the smoky flavor. The other is like the, uh, the nice crust of bark that you get on the outside. And I know sous vide is a good way to control the temperature and make it nice and tender, but how can I get the smoke and the bark after or before using sous vide? Yeah, it's tough. There's a couple of problems. One, that when you use sous vide, at least with uh, the lower temperatures that are associated with sous vide, you're not going to get the same texture. So if you, I don't know if you've done it before, but when you do like a short rib when you're cooking sous vide, um, you'll notice that the connective tissue gets soft, but it doesn't render out, right? So the fibers never get kind of stringy the way that they get in a traditional uh, in a traditional braise. So in a traditional braise or a barbecue, the, the connective tissue is going to melt out and the fibers in the meat are going to basically going to be lubricated by that connective tissue. That's why the meat without connective tissue never tastes good on barbecue, right? So when you're doing it in sous vide, the stuff turns soft, but it doesn't render out. And that's why one of the interesting things about sous vide, like short rib, for instance, is that you can slice it, unlike a normal thing, which is going to break apart because the fibers are totally broken apart. So the texture is um, a little bit a little bit different. Um, and so it's not, I think, going to pull the same way that uh, texture-wise that, that uh, normal barbecue, I don't know what you're making, I assume pork, right? Pulled pork is going to, yeah. is going to work. The other thing is, is, that you, is that the outside crust, I mean, you, what you, one way you could do it, I mean, the smoke is going to be tough. You need smoke, right? And I'm assuming right. that, you know, that there are some high-quality smoke applications that you can put on, uh, or you could do a cold smoke kind of a situation, but it doesn't taste quite the same. Like something that's smoked doesn't taste the same as something that has the smoke flavor from barbecuing it, from being, bar- you know, from being made into barbecue. They don't, to me, they don't taste quite the same, although I don't know the chemistry of why that's the case. But, um you could apply a smoke. There are some very high-quality smoke products that taste a whole hell of a lot better than liquid smoke, but still people don't like to do it because you're basically applying a smoke flavor to something rather than smoking it naturally. Uh, right. But you could, you could like, cold smoke or uh, even uh, hot smoke after the sous vide step or after the low temp step, but you're still going to need, if you want that, that, that surface on the outside, you're going to need to apply some dry heat to it to actually get some of the moisture out of it. Now, you can apply that with a higher uh, higher temperature than you would doing when you're making normal barbecue, and that would allow you to keep the inside still, um, you know, have the advantage of the low temp, but, uh, you know, having the outside dry out a little bit, but it's going to be totally different because then it, it, to obtain that same surface that you would get, you want to have a kind of a 
the browning happen for a long time over a low temp, and it's not going to provide the same result because in order to keep the low temperature result on the inside, you're going to need to put it like in a 500 degree uh, like grill or oven or something that to really get the outside you know to crisp up on you and, and get it to firm up without overdoing the inside. But it's not going to be exactly the same result. It would still be delicious, right? But I don't think it's going to be the same result. Does that, that make sense or no? Yeah, yeah. So. I might get a, di- a, a different product, but I could still uh, get something that's delicious and um, maybe approximates barbecue. Yeah, that's not Yeah, I mean, it's going to be totally different. But, yeah, low-temp cook, and you can, you can either put something smoky in the bag or you can smoke it a little bit afterwards or get a real, like, put some chips or something to make your grill real smoky, get your grill hot as hell, put it in there, you know, not touching the fire maybe, but, like, uh, away from the hot as hell and then crisp up the outside and, uh, and get some smoke flavor in it that way. And you can make a delicious product, but I don't think it's going to be the same as, like, regular barbecue. Delicious but different. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so I called a couple of weeks ago, and I had some questions about I bought a used lab circulator, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it out. I got some good advice last time, and I think I got some good advice this time, so I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, let us know how it goes, and uh, hopefully it works out for you. I think it will. Great, thank you. All right, thanks. All right, we're going to go to our third, second commercial break. Uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues live from Heathrow Airport. Hits it, it lights up. It's kind of cool. Anyway, so uh, quinine 
is in the tonic water, although that is the characteristic flavor, the bitterness flavor of it, quinine is not there in enough of a quantity to stop you from getting malaria. So if you, you know, don't think you're going to, you know, cure your malaria with tonic water, right? In fact, uh, the doses that you need for, uh, for, for medicinal reasons are much higher. I think at least two times higher. Um, so the, in, the, in the way that we normally put it into a drink is by using a, a derivative of salt of quinine, quinine sulfate, right? And you can buy this stuff, but you have to be incredibly careful when you buy it because uh, an overdose of quinine is, you know, a, a bad thing. It, it causes a disease known as chincotism. It's, it's no good. You have to be careful. Uh, until recently, you could just go in and buy it uh, at a pharmacy because people will take it for leg cramps. But now it's considered a prescription medication. So there's two ways you can do it. You can get a doctor doctor friend to write you a prescription for quinine, uh, for, you know, because you say, oh, I have terrible leg cramps, and they'll prescribe you some quinine, you can get quinine and do it that way, or, I mean, I don't, rec- I don't, uh, that may or may not be fraud, in which case I don't recommend it, uh, but the, uh, you know, the other way is you go to a lab supply house and you buy uh, quinine sulfate, uh, and you have to buy the USP grade, which is basically a pharmaceutical grade, food considered okay for consumption, and you buy a, uh, you know, you buy a little, little vial of it. The stuff I bought, I bought from a company called Spectrum Chemical, and I bought their USP grade of quinine sulfate. And you have to be extremely careful with it. Quinine sulfate, you're going to want to be using on the order of, well, the, the legal limit for tonic water is less than 83 parts per million, which is way more bitter than you actually want it to be. So you want the, the best way to use uh, quinine is, first of all, don't let other people handle it. You know, you know, keep it safe so people don't just, you know, use it like they would sugar or cream or acid or something like that. And then um, make a solution of uh, quinine in water or in alcohol is actually better that you keep there and then make use it as kind of a bittering agent. But you, you want to be careful not just for a safety reason, but also quinine can become, uh, it'll go from being not bitter enough to being, very much too bitter, extremely bitter, uh, with very small additions because the taste, at least in my mind, seems to be cumulative. So, you know, a little bit of tonic water, a little bit of quinine, okay, a little more, okay, a little more, you know, okay, and another, the next shot, and you're like, boom, it's, it's ruined, it's too bitter. Um, so uh, I would just say, uh, you know, be careful with it, but you can get it. It's not cheap. I paid $80 for, you know, a little vial of it. Uh, but that vial has lasted me years because it takes such a small amount of the quinine to uh, to to bitter up your your tonic water. And then, of course, you you know the, for the rest of your quinine work for your tonic, you're either going to want to use an acid mix, which which lime acid to to mimic the flavor of limes, which I recommend would be uh, two parts of citric acid, which is the um, which is the acid from lemons, one part malic acid, which is the acid from limes, and then a pinch of succinic. Now, succinic is really going to give you the characteristic authentic lime taste, uh, and that one you can only get from chemical supply houses, like Spectrum, again, is where I got mine, USP. But you can do a fairly good, but don't you, again, be careful with that one, because it's really nasty if you add too much. But um, the citric and malic acid you can get from a homebrew supply shop, it's a really good way to do it. Otherwise, you can just make your tonic water uh, with a clarified lime juice, uh, which, you know, we have uh, on our blogs, go to cookingissues.com and look up uh, clarification. We have a way to clarify lime juice, and you can make a tonic water with that. And that is delicious carbonated with uh, gin. Uh, Colin also asks um, about, uh, he just got a big block of peat, uh, and he's, you know, peat, as you know, most of you might know, uh, they uh, roast uh, malts with uh, peat when they're going to do, uh, you know, scotch is more or less peaty, depending on which scotch it is. Uh, 
and it's that you add the characteristic flavor. So he wants to use peat, maybe uh, distilled peat, or get uh, some essential oils out of it. Um, but my impression is that you don't want to use the peat directly, and that the peat is good for making peat flavor when it's being burned. So I would uh, I would definitely. I would definitely use the peat. Uh, you can smoke something with a peat, throw some peat on the on the grill, and then uh, and then let the tra- flavor transfer over to your food from from roasting uh, from uh, you know using the peat to, to burn it. I've never actually used it, but it's something I would definitely definitely love to do. I'm kind of like secretly fascinated with peat and also with uh, bog mummies. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated with like you know these bogs, you know where like peat is. You go, you cut peat in a bog. And they're very acidic conditions because you're breaking down sphagnum moss in there, and, and it releases chemicals and, and acidity down there that basically, you know, well can, uh, you know, so human beings back in the days, you know, druid days and whatnot, that you, know, you would have these people who, one way or another, human sacrifice, execution, whatever, killed and thrown into these bogs, and they're preserved for thousands of years very well. Um, so I kind of have a secret fascination, I guess not so secret anymore, with uh, bog bodies. But another interesting thing about bogs that, uh, that I'm fascinated with is the idea of bog butter. So you have these strange fat deposits in bogs uh, called bog butter. And then I, I believe, although I can't verify this, that some people would actually put uh, fat into bogs to preserve them, and then you could use them like a long, 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 long time later. So I always find some ancient stash of bog butter and then... Um, and then cook with it, but you know, uh, I don't think that's uh, that's going to happen. But speaking of things that I've always wanted to have happen and just did happen, is uh, you know, in, in the U.S., it's very difficult to get game birds to eat unless you are a hunter because you cannot hunt meat and this commercially in the United States. So, uh, so anyway, so it's very difficult to get birds like woodcock. We have to get it shipped from Scotland. It costs an arm and leg. Uh, grouse. Uh, did I say grass? No. Yeah, grouse, woodcock, teal, which is kind of like a tiny duck, widgeon, which is kind of another kind of small duck, snipe, uh, all these birds, these great birds that, you know, I've read about my whole life, these great game birds, and I've never had them before. And went uh, two nights in a row to a restaurant here in London called Hicks, and the first night they had grouse on the menu, which I instantly ordered. I got the last one. I, I almost had to beat the crap out of someone else so that I could make sure that I got this last grouse because I wasn't going to leave London without having it. And then by chance, and it was delicious, by the way, like game being uh, you know, unlike any other bird I had ever had. Like everyone says, you know, well, grouse is just different. And I was like, well, yeah, it is. You know what I mean? Uh, and the menu says, you know, may contain shot if you need it and whatnot. And the next day we went back. Um, randomly, and the person apologized for, you know, making us go to the same restaurant twice in a row, but their menu was almost completely changed. And I just, I know it must have had a really good menu change. And they had a game feast, a game bird feast, with woodcock, teal, widgeon, and snipe. And I, uh, I just went, I went, I went crazy. First of all, woodcock, you know, the, you know, the, what they say about woodcock, and it's one of these things with a really long beak, is that it takes off, and as it takes off, it poops out everything that's in its intestines, so it's not basically eviscerated. All the guts are still on the inside of the woodcock, and they cook it, uh, and and they serve it to you, and it's got this a long beak, and the head's still on. The whole thing's basically entirely whole, and uh, and all four birds were, let's just put it this way, they're a little bit bloody. I, w- I did spit some shot out onto the plate during the middle of the day. This gives you an idea what the meal was like. So, uh, 
So anyway, so I'm there with uh, these you know two friends of mine from uh, 69 Colbert Row, Mimi and, and Stuart and Nastasha. They're there, and uh, Mimi's actually I guess not for 69 Colbert Row. She works with Havana Club. We, we can't buy in the U.S. There's a fake Havana Club in the U.S. It's not really the real one. The, the real Havana Club can't come to the U.S. because I'm bargaining with Cuba. Anyway, I'm sitting there and uh, I'm feeling these birds. Like literally, there's blood from the birds, all, like all over my hands. Nastasha looks over. I have like a piece of heart from the woodcock like, stuck on my knuckle, you know, I'm looking across the table, and I'm sure I have blood all over my face from the, and everyone's completely horrified, but, and I said, like, look, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, but I've never had to, had a chance to eat these birds before, and, you know, you really need to pick them up, and it's really not, like, a neat and dangerous, and I apologize for, you know, making such a mess of it, but, you know, that's kind of, that's what it is. And I'm done. And I apologize to everyone for this horrific carnage scene. I'm sure the entire restaurant was repulsed. Uh, and and as the guy played play away, he's like, oh, so how was the head? And this is after I just apologized for making this. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're supposed to split the head of the woodcock open and suck the brains out. So then after all that, I sit there and I shove the knife through the head of the woodcock and split it in half. And then... Uh, suck the brains out. So I think that was kind of the last nail in the coffin of decency uh, for the heat. But it was a chance um, that, uh, uh, you know, that I've never had before. But with that meal, I'll leave you with this. That meal I had uh, right after Nastasha and I had just eaten, uh, you know, several hundreds of varieties of fruit. Uh, so it was, it, it was a gastrointestinal extravaganza that day. Let's just say I had, uh, we had, you know, we're about, Three quarters full up with uh, with uh, mangled fruit parts, and then we stuffed it down with yeah, with with, uh, with our game birds. And then, of course, I had to have dessert because it's me. Uh, and since I was in England and going full traditional, I had, of course, the famous pudding spot dick. And this has been Cooking Issues live from Heathrow, London. Come back to uh, come back to us next week when we'll be back in New York City. Vicious, vicious vodka. 